This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I've stopped at the roadside on the top of Mudgley Hill because this gives me the most wonderful vantage point down across the Somerset levels. And what makes it all the more magical is that you can see how the mist is lying low across the ground, this white haze that masks so much of what's there. For this week's Open Country, what I want to explore is actually what lies beneath the surface in what is a man-made landscape, a natural resource that has been utilised by humans since the earliest of days, and that is peat. I've come to E.J. Godwin's, which sits between the villages of Birtle and West Hay, and this is a family business which is in its sixth generation of operation, and I'm with Ben Malin. Now, a look around me, we've got um, lots of shedding all around us, and then beyond that, we've got these massive piles of dark peat. You're in the middle of um, what used to be the southern peat production zone and we harvest peat during the summer months. It's a bit like making hay. We only can harvest the peat when the weather's suitable uh, and we dry the peat and then the industry around here will bring it into their factory sites and they will stockpile it and have it ready for production over the winter, ready for the spring season, which is the peat demand for compost, growing media as we call it. The peat that's gathered here on this site, where, where is it going? What is it used for? The primary purpose of this operation is to supply the retail market. There's a certain amount of professional horticulture supplied from here, but it's primary the retail market, and the primary raw material remains black Somerset sedge peat. And what quantities are we talking about from these great hills that are around us? This factory site alone, in its peak year, has done something like 200,000 tonnes of product, of which 60% of which would be Somerset sedge peat. Can we go sort of up close and personal with these Uh, piles uh, of peat? Of course. Come over and have a look. Because as we walk through the, um, the factory site, you know, underfoot... Even though you've got concrete on top of that, there is this smear of, of, of wet peat. It, it must get into everything. It's it stains your life. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dirty, messy business making compost. Any site you go to at this time of year will be pretty muddy and, and unpleasant. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a bit um, mucky in doing this, but you have got to reach down and pull up some peat. It's cold in my hand and damp and I can squeeze it into a ball in my hands like that and it leaves its residue on my skin and it's got a great smell of... Oh, smell of the earth. Isn't it beautiful? Crumbles. How is it formed? This is sedge peat, which is made of decomposed sedges and grasses and basically this was once a brackish reed swamp. This, this area is below high tide, this would have been flooded Uh, and would have been a salt marsh and then during different eras of climate change there were different sea levels sea level rose and fell the area would have vegetated Uh, reeds colonised it the reeds died off they fall into the water they decompose over time and that builds up and over centuries and even to thousands of years you get the peat form and the area eventually dried out the land was drained the first attempts at drainage were by the Romans 
Um, subsequently, the monks of Glastonbury Abbey did drainage work, and then the most significant drainage work was done with the need for more agricultural land around the Napoleonic Wars, with the land was enclosed and it was drained. So the whole area of the Somerset levels, the artificial water level is maintained by internal drainage boards and the Environment Agency by pumping. That's a long history of man managing the land, isn't it? But this, this natural resource that was lying underfoot became so very, very valuable. And, you know, we'll, we'll look into that past later on, but you're working with this material in the present day. That's right. It was harvested as fuel peat uh, for a very long time, and that's how Godwin started, selling peat cut for fuel peat. And then really, uh, horticultural peat use began with the Second World War, with the, the Dig for Britain campaign, and peat's part of the John Innes formula. And Somerset was the closest source of peat to the home counties and to London. So that's where horticultural use became so important. The industry then, through the 50s and the 60s, mechanised, and it went from a soil-based growing media, the John Innes formula, to what they call a soilless growing media, which was entirely peat, because peat's not technically a soil, because it has no mineral content. What about the future for you and peat? It's, it's a very controversial subject, isn't it? I mean, gardeners are being encouraged not to use peat-based compost. There are government phase-out targets, voluntary phase-out targets for the industry, um, the industry is working towards a responsible sourcing scheme that considers all of the raw materials. We see that, in our view, peat will continue to play a role for the foreseeable future. We think peat's very important to the industry as one of a suite of raw materials as part of the mix, but not as the sole material in the mix. Where we differ here in Somerset is the we're taking the agricultural land you see on that side of the road and through peat extraction, creating a habitat at the end of it. And our view, the Somerset industry's view, is that this is where the future of any peat that is required in future should come from. Because of the way it's... Because of what we're doing afterwards. We're not taking a, uh, a bog habitat and extracting the peat from that and, if you like, taking something away, taking away peat-forming habitat. We're taking away agricultural land which has been drained and hasn't formed peat for 2,000 years and we are creating at the end of it a wetland habitat with conservation benefits and the potential to form peat again over long periods of time. Well I'll leave you at the side of this extraction site and I want to discover more about what has been found in the peat that can tell us the story of the past of this landscape and man's place in it. I've come a few miles west into Glastonbury. I'm walking down the high street towards the Tribunal building. Um, It's an ancient monument, actually, and go inside. This houses the Glastonbury Lake Village Museum, and I'm here to meet Steve Minnett, who's the head of museums for the Southwest Heritage Trust. Glastonbury Lake Village, Steve. What's the story of that? It was discovered in 1892 and excavations showed it to be probably the best preserved prehistoric settlement in Britain. It's a remarkable site. Um, It was occupied in in the later Iron Age, just over 2,000 years ago. But it really comes at at the end of a a long sequence of people living and doing their daily things around the wetlands of the Somerset Levels. And you're able to discover so much about it because the the wetlands and and the, 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 the peat helps preserve the stories of such an ancient past. 
That, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the Lake Village uh, was an artificial island that was constructed essentially on peat. What I've come here to discover is the story that goes even further back than this village itself. What is it and how far back? The earliest evidence we've got from this area for people living in, in the middle of the peatlands uh, goes back to about 10,000 years ago, the Mesolithic period. But the area remained important to subsequent inhabitants. The first farmers arrived, I suppose, about 6,000 years ago. And you find that from very early on, they began constructing timber walkways, which enabled them to get across, uh, made life much, much easier. And one of the earliest of those, and certainly the most famous, is the Sweet Track, which was a raised plank walkway, um, a very sophisticated piece of work. It was about two kilometres long. Enormous amount of work went into its creation, but it was used for just about ten years. And you have fragments of that here within within the, the Glastonbury Lakes Village Museum? I, I brought some over especially for you to take a look oh, at. Oh, really? I presume they're in this grey cardboard box they in front of indeed, us? indeed, yes. There's just a few samples of the Can many... I lift the lid? You lift the lid and take a look. <laughs> wow. So, first impression. The darkness of the wood. That's stained by, by the peat water, by the peat. Um, and, and what have we got in the different pieces? Say this, this, this flatter bit here, which is about the size of, well, you know, a reading book. That, that's right, yeah. It's actually the end of one of the planks from the walkway, so it, it's actually been sawn off at, at that end, so it would have been a metre, two metres, however long, originally. It's oak, it would have been split using wedges and mallets. It's heavy. And it, it was the surface upon which Neolithic, the first farmer people, would have actually walked to cross this oh. peatland. And then that ancient man's foot would have rested where I now yeah. rest my hand Absolutely. on this piece of wood. Yeah. How astounding uh, that is. Uh, and the, the notch in the end, because it was a fairly precarious yeah. um, process of walking two kilometres on something as narrow as that, that would have had a, a peg driven through it just to provide a bit more stability. Oh, what are the little but, round... They look like large rabbit droppings. Uh, they do rather look like that, but um, actually they're hazelnuts. They, they are 6,000-year-old hazelnuts... Yeah, it was people crisscrossed the trackway and you, could only, you couldn't pass anybody without stepping off into the water. They occasionally either lost things, dropped things, or with some objects we believe they placed them as special deposits. Can I pick up the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 6,000-year-old yeah. hazelnuts? <laughs> yes, of course. There we go. Oh, gosh. Tuss never ceases to amaze me in all the open countries that we've done and the many ancient things that I've handled. The sense of the massive passage of time between that falling on the ground and where we're standing it now. It comes down to the peat. It holds the story. It does. It does. I mean, that's why it's so hugely important to the archaeology of Somerset in particular. So I think, really, the next step for me has to be, Steve, that I actually go back now out into the levels to the area where this was extracted from. And we're going to meet um, Dr Richard Brunning, who has been digging in the peat for decades yes. so he might have some good <laughs> stories to tell so I think it looks, it looks narrow and worse than it is <laughs> once you've gone up and down it a few times it'll be fine 
Oh, I don't know. I, I feel as though I'm walking on a tightrope. <laughs> I'm using my arms outstretched to try well, and balance myself. The, the original was, was more precarious than this. We've had to make a few allowances for modern health and safety. And this is where the original track would have run and it would have looked like this. That's right. So you're, you're almost literally walking in the footsteps of um, our Neolithic ancestors all those thousands of years ago. Now, I can understand why they had them because it kept their feet dry, but that can't be the only reason. It's, it's more in-depth than that. Yes, yes. I mean, it really was partly to get from A to B, to get from the, the Polden Ridge on the south side over to an island in the middle of the valley called West Hay. So it was partly about that, but it was, it was more special than that. A lot of the artefacts deposited beside the trackway weren't just casually dropped, they are deliberately deposited as offerings. So as well as being a trackway, it's probably our earliest religious site, if you want to take that sort of view. Because what you're unearthing may have been placed there by man, we're talking nearly 4,000 years BC. <laughs> yes, I mean, we can be very precise about the sweet track, so we can say 3,806 probably the early spring they built it so how can you do that oh that's from um tree ring dating dendrochronology of the uh, the oak planks that were used so we know exactly when it was first built and we know it was being repaired six years later we can be very precise even though it's almost six thousand years ago so you knew it was being repaired yes or it, it, in was, it was repaired in 3800 bc because you could tell from the pieces of wood that were used then. That's right. And, and repaired because why? Because on the original, sometimes uh, in a flood, the, the planks would float away, so they'd have to be replaced. Right, so the water was always rising and falling Yes, then. yes, yes. It not was... as managed as it was, as it became to be. No, and it's not as managed as it is now. But reed beds are, are fairly stable as an environment, so it wouldn't be huge shifts in water table. And why is it called the sweet track? Oh, that was because of who discovered it. A chap called Ray Sweet, a peat digger, who discovered it one day while cleaning a drain. So it was named in his honour after him. Um, most of the trackways are either named after the people who discovered them or the, um, the peat companies who own the fields. And it's been the extraction of peat which has helped in the discovery of, of these great relics of ancient man. But the story of man's place is a very constant one across these peatlands and there's a lot of history and I need to find out a little bit more about that. I've come up onto Shapwick Heath. Just stop for a moment because the, the clouds have cleared a little bit and the light has brightened and it, it, it sets a glow across the place. Um, the greens of the grass seem to freshen and the fringes of reeds all around the waterway, you know, they take on a much warmer caramel hue. I'm with Peter Lander and Peter, you volunteered through the Avalon Marshes Landscape yeah. Partnership. Oh yes. Now, you, you and I are here to, um, to discover that part of the story, the industrialisation I suppose of the yeah. extraction of peat. Now when did that happen and why? About 1900. The mainland railway was built about 1860. 1864 it was opened in fact. Uh, and that created this environment where people were no longer just digging peat as a fuel as a sideline. They could begin to export it. But fuel Still is fuel. Peat, peat, peat mm. was a very valuable fuel mm. because the story here is, it's a thing of smallholders digging almost for their own need. Farmers, in, in, in a certain period of time of year, April to June, they'd be digging peat. They'd carefully go through a, a, quite an involved process of drying it to turn it from a, a wet material to a very dry material, but only for their own needs. And gradually, 
that shifted from turfs being dug as fuel to the peat industry as we recognise now, which is about horticulture. When the peat was originally worked, in Victorian times, they, weren't, they were going down about three feet. They couldn't go any deeper because of the water. But in later times, by, by controlling the water, they were going right down to the clay. They were going about, down about 10 or 12 feet. The other thing that's worth noting is if, if you'd come here about 50 years ago, the environment would have looked, looked you'd have seen that sort of thing. The whole area would have been covered with those Dalek-looking objects. So vast peat stacks. Yes, but those are ruckles. Above the height oh, yeah. of man, what do you call them here? They're called ruckles. Oh. There's a whole terminology which, <laughs> which is pure curious for the Somerset <laughs> turf working. And but, it, but those are ruckles. That shows men building them, actually. Normally it was built by ladies. It was built by women. Oh. The women built the rock. And the men did the digging? Yes. So this was pre-industrialisation, although yes, looking at that, this, it was quite large scale. But this was going scale. on to the 1960s. Mm. This yeah. was going on to the 1960s. Yeah. And, and, and this whole environment, this whole landscape, would have been just completely covered with Daleks. Well, <laughs> with those, with those, with, with those panels of water and those Dalek-shaped objects. Yes. But the horticulture need came out of waste product from the turf. The particular peat that they had to dig for, for the, for the burning and had to dry out, was down below some of the other layers. They had to take the topsoil off, as you would have seen in the modern working. There was then a layer of sphagnum moss, and it was the sphagnum moss was a waste product. It was no use for burning. And a few canny merchants identified that they must, let's find a use for this, this sort of byproduct. And they, they invented this product called peat moss. It was used as a filter medium, as animal bedding, uh, it's believed it was a lot shipped over to, to the trenches of World War One, And then the valuable bit, well... <laughs> the val- they carried on taking out the valuable bit. Yes. They'd also found that in processing the peat blocks, they ended up with some dust. So again, it's a look of ingenuity. What do we do with the dust? And they, they, they identified a potential use for that dust as a horticultural product. And it was sold for race courses and bowling greens and golf courses. And they even shipped it to America in those days, because it really was sold, it was sold as Hummel, it was sold as a premium luxury product. But it was waste product, basically, essentially. You are completely fascinated by this story. And I you've, am. <laughs> you've absorbed so much material about it, soaked it in like well, yes. a peat bog. Well, because so much is woven into it with the social history, and because it was so important. I mean, we're talking about sort of probably about 50 or 60 workers then, but in the 60s and 70s, they were employing about 250 people. But the demise history. was to come. Yeah, And when, yes. when did that happen and why? Uh, essentially, the faction here uh, just stopped abruptly in the very early 90s. But eventually, the Eclipse company was taken over by Fison, who were, were, were at that stage were one of the big agrochemical and horticultural giants. By that stage, Fisons were being pursued economically and, and, and also the environmental issues beginning to become apparent. And essentially, they just handed over the land here to, to, to the Nature Conservancy Council, as it was. And it's the very industry that was happening in this place that created the landscape, yes. which is going to be part of its future. Oh, yes. And that's what I want to find out about now. I'm walking across one of the trackways that have been created by Natural England and it's interesting because underfoot they have wooden logs across the path and in a way it sort of echoes what was happening here 6,000 years ago with the sweet track. And I'm walking along um, the edge of um, a very dense reed bed, although there is a drain I see between me and where the reed bed starts. And I'm coming to meet Simon Clark, who is the Senior Reserve Manager. There's a lovely stillness, Simon, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's, this is probably one of the best times times of the day. It's just, just before darkness comes and um, there's a bit of expectation in the air that something's going to happen, maybe. Yes. But in the meantime, this is a, a nature reserve 
that could not have been here if it hadn't been for peat extraction? No, this this reserve, or particularly the area that we're in at the moment, is a, is a form of peat working. So this is a wetland habitat that's been recreated from what was a former industrial landscape. Um, but within this landscape, which we now call the Avalon Marshes, this, this kind of restoration and recreation of a semi-natural habitat is has been you know taking place over the last 10 to 15 years really so it, you know in the older days when they were taking out peat they dug great big holes mm-hmm. all right so naturally i would presume they would eventually fill with water and obviously when they were digging the peat they were pumping so that was keeping the water levels down but as soon as you turn the pumps off then the water let the levels will gradually come up so i can see how the great holes that were left would fill with this blackened water yeah <laughs> But then how do you go from there to creating what are really very special nature reserves now? You're dealing with quite a, a, a substance that absorbs water quite easily and you need to control the water levels to make sure that you can actually do the work you need to do. Also below the peat there is a level, a layer of clay and if you go through that layer of clay then you can actually almost get down to the salt pan below. So you've got to be careful you don't do that because then you, you might potentially get salt water or salt inundation into these sites. So it is quite technical. And the other issue is, obviously, we've got a wetland reserve here that we're trying to manage. We need to protect our neighbours who perhaps have got farmland or maybe are still working peat. We need to stop our wetland areas flooding into their areas. So it's all about isolating them from the surrounding landscape. Quite a challenge then. And you're trying to do lots of things for lots of different different species as well. Um, and at the same time, you're also trying to manage it in a way that the visitors can, can appreciate it but not actually impact on the wildlife that's here. So the new industry then is tourism? Yeah, I mean, um, this reserve, Jatwick Heath, gets about 85,000 visitors a year. And because of that, we need to try and provide adequate, good, good facilities and where possible, you know, accessible for as many different groups as we can. And we're almost below it, in a way, the reeds grow so tall. Yeah, I mean, this time of year they're dying back, but, you know, you can walk into the middle of one of these reed beds and they'll be 8, 10 feet 10 feet in height and if you were if you're walking through a landscape of this like for example along one of the old trackways you have to imagine this is what the landscape would have been like six seven thousand years ago we were almost going a step beyond the the last period when it was a raised bar we're, we're back to seven thousand years ago so in a, in a way we're talking about a full circle here yes you're trying to recreate the place that it would have been six thousand years ago Yes, a bit more accessible, <laughs> and not to the scale, but yeah, the habitat that you're looking at here, this rebed is, is similar to the habitat the people that were walking along the sweet track would have walked through. Which is an amazing thought, considering the history, the human history, the, um, the working history, the industrial history that, that it has. And, and Richard Brunning has, has come with us to this particular point. So this is a, this is a place of great history, it is, and it's, um, it, we're very lucky that Natural England have recreated all these prehistoric landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really see it like that? Well, it is. I mean, it, this, is, this is what the valley would have looked like at different periods in time, from the reed bed to the wet woodland. So they are kind of prehistoric landscapes. Indeed, to some people, they might seem a bit kind of primeval today, really, because I think they're so rare. And in your time as an archaeologist, you've done a lot of excavation down into the peat. You know, what... What's that like, touching it and digging and hoping? Well, it's, it's, it's very nice. It's a very tactile experience, digging peat. It's quite easy as well, I have to say. Preservation makes it fantastic. Sometimes you can just peel off a layer of peat and you can see some leaves that had fallen in a wet pond thousands and thousands of years ago 
and they're still there in their autumn colours of red and yellow and brown. After a few moments it fades because they oxidise, but in that moment it's as though time stood still for thousands of years, so it's, it's fantastic really. So we come here to enjoy the, the wildlife, but we can't be here without appreciating the human history of the place. It's, it's not just a wild place, it's, it was a human habitation. That's right, but um, throughout all the thousands of years, it's the landscape and humans have gone together and they've changed together. So it's, it's a landscape that's always been changing in the past and probably always will be changing. It's a dynamic place.